Friends, before we begin our episode, we need to offer a word of explanation. On the night that we recorded this conversation about Flannery O'Connor with my dear friend Father Jordan Neek, a priest of St. Norbert Abbey, we had terrible technical trouble. We had difficulties both with our internet and with our microphones. And so, we seriously considered not airing this episode at all. Ultimately, we decided that we would let you decide. It is our belief that if you decide to listen, knowing that the sound is bad, you will be rewarded with a life-giving conversation about a brilliant and fantastic author. Hello! You are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Wednesday's Plumfield in Person. I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk for an interesting discussion of Flannery O'Connor, and she has a guest with her today. Diane, I am so happy to have my dear friend, Father Jordan Meek, a priest of St. Norbert Abbey, here with us again today. And today we're going to talk about Flannery O'Connor. We read Flannery in our Tuesday Night Classics Club, but just like when we discussed Frankenstein, Father and I have done a lot of work with Flannery O'Connor together before we even read it in our Tuesday Night Club. So we're happy to have Father here. Thanks. Great to be back on the on the podcast. I think it's only fair to tell you that I don't have much Flannery O'Connor in me. And I have noted that in like most of my short story books that I have around the house, you find a good man is hard to find. And that's not all I've read because, of course, you gave me the list. But I think that that's probably what most people get if they're just if they have a smattering of short stories. Tell me about how you got interested in her and decided to do this for your book club. Well, Father, did you read Flannery before we read it together? I read a story before we read it together because one of my confreres, uh, Father Matthew, said, every Catholic should read Flannery O'Connor. And I'm like, well, he's really smart. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll ask him like, what story should I read? So Father Matthew gave me his collection of short stories of Flannery. And he said, you have to read A Good Man is Hard to Find. Mm, there you go, Diane. <laughs> and, and so I read it and I came back to him and I said, yeah, I'm I'm very confused on right the misfit and grandma and is it and I gave some explanation and he looked at me and he said, "Yeah, you did not understand what she was writing." And then he <laughs> took the book and put it back on the shelf. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, that was my introduction to Flannery where I I go, she's a really complex author that she's not simple. She doesn't, this isn't a person, right, that you just easily read. This is a deep person that you need to spend time thinking about. It's like Frankenstein and yet completely opposite. It's like Frankenstein in that you'll think about it probably for the rest of your life once you've read it. But Frankenstein was really direct and Flannery is the very opposite of that. She Mm -hmm. is very, her stories are shrouded in mystery and they're pregnant with symbolism. And it takes a while to really unlock her. 
One of the things we discussed at Tuesday Night Book Club a couple of weeks ago was that Father and I have read a significant amount of Flannery now, and we can spot her archetypes. And some of the other people in the group were beginning to feel the same way, like, oh, I know what this is going to happen. I know how this is going to go now, because that's her archetype. She always does that with that kind of character. And I think once you get more familiar with her, being able to spot the archetype helps you to get through that first reading where you're just trying to figure out who's going to die. <laughs> and how, <laughs> and how <laughs> gruesomely. <laughs> um, and then you can get to more of what Father Matthew always says, which is find the grace. There is always a door that is opening with grace being ushered in. You've got to, that's what you have to look for. If you can look for the grace, the story will make sense. But it takes a while to be able to do that. Yeah. When we first started, using this uh, together, I had to read the stories three times to finally figure out what is being communicated. Because I knew also from my conversation uh, with Father Matthew that he said everything is important in what she writes. And so sometimes you can, you're, you're trying to take a scalpel right away and be like, okay, is this important? Is this important? Is this important? And then you get lost, right? You get uh, lost in the forest. Forest uh, for the trees. Right. Yeah. And uh, after reading the first few stories several times again and again in, in a sitting, you take a step back and you, you're not analyzing everything, uh, but you right. know some things are important. Like last night or, or this most recent book club, we read Geranium. And I go, huh, I wonder if that Geranium is some kind of play or symbol that she's using. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting. So when we walked into book club, my children were with us and they went down into the basement of our friend's house. And as we're walking in, Father Jordan says to my son, Michael, what is the origin of the geranium? Where does it come from? And so he went into Latin, uh, well, of of the word, the origin of the word he went into. And I go, no, 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 not that. Well, where is it from? <laughs> Where's the actual flower from or plant from? And so then tonight, in preparation for this, Father came over for dinner with another friend of ours who's in book club. And Dan made the point that geraniums, historically, were planted in graveyards next to the graves of fallen servicemen. They're hardy, and they were typically red geraniums, and they marked the grave of somebody of military rank. And so they became so popular that um, they ended up being, you know, used by, by cemeteries everywhere all the time. But knowing that the geranium and Judgment Day were both Flannery's first and her last stories, and that when she was writing Judgment Day, she was acutely aware that she was in her final stages. And knowing that this geranium really does seem to signify something intentional on her part. And I just think of, you know, we all want to be told by Christ, well done, when we get to heaven to receive our reward. And does she maybe think of herself as a soldier for Christ? And that is why the geranium perhaps was the flower or the motif that she used. Hmm. Yeah, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So um, unlike the two of you, that was not my first story. I, my first story of Flannery's was Revelation. 
Yeah, we read it in potato peel pie way back in the beginning, like in the first or second year of potato peel pie. And I was baffled by it when I read it alone. But once we started discussing it in the threads, we went into this deep and powerful discussion and we had some serious disagreements. But it was when I realized that there was really something at work in Flannery. Well, and that's something that was interesting in book club um, of how many people uh, just really resist Flannery or uh, don't like her or want to throw the book against the wall or just disturbed and bothered. And uh, I found that fascinating, but I think that's also Flannery's point on Bishop Barron's series, Pivotal Players. He quotes her, to the blind, you draw big pictures and to the deaf, you shout. And so she's all about disturbing a person's worldview or disturbing their conscience. To those who, who like rainbows and sunshine, she'll create lightning and thunder. Right. For those who understand what's at work in Flannery, she calms you. You know, what, what do we always say? That Christ came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think that <laughs> it's a very apt description of Flannery as well. I think that when we can contemplate the brokenness of the characters in the story, we can take solace in the fact that grace is being offered even to them. Even Mrs. Turpin, who is a warthog from hell, according to the character in the story. Mary Grace. Mary Grace. <laughs> right. There's a play, play on words there. hundred percent. That Miss, even Mrs. Turpin is still a candidate for heaven because grace knows no bounds. Grace is limitless and that the Lord will pursue her onto her last breath. And so that was what was very unsettling for some of the people in potato peel pie was that they felt that the story of Mrs. Turpin, they felt that, that she wasn't redeemable and that it was wrong for Flannery to be unclear about Mrs. Turpin's spiritual future, which I think what human on this side of heaven could possibly know the state of another right. soul. <laughs> yeah. And if we believe in a God who is fickle, then what kind of nonsense have we subscribed to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So my first story was Revelation, and I was intrigued enough to buy Jonathan Rogers' book, The Terrible Speed of Mercy, and he allowed her to tell her own story. He used, he quoted heavily from her essays, which are compiled in the book, The Habit of Being, and her letters, and her prayer journal, and her stories, and then specifically in the letters, how she said, what she says to her friends about what she was doing in the stories and having that resource be a guidebook into Flannery for me, it was the decoder ring. I then, when I read a good man is hard to find, I'd already known the ending because Jonathan Rogers had told me and I was glad, I was glad to know. Short stories are different. They're not my favorite because you get all involved in them and this intense thing is happening and you get into the characters and then you're done. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I wasn't done reading, but the story is over and um, that's not my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I don't really appreciate a lot of times is when it is that hard to figure out what just happened. I don't mind being challenged, 
but when it's really obscure, it's kind of like, ah, uh, what was that for? So short stories are a completely different kind of thing than novels, obviously. Some of it is. You were saying something about, um, you know, not being extra words and that kind of thing. That's part of a short story is you don't put anything in. Oh, you were talking about uh, trying to find what matters. In a short story, a good writer, there is nothing that doesn't matter. Right. So I guess if you just come to Flanner and you're, you're not a short story reader, you wouldn't already know that. But there shouldn't be a lot of fluff in a short story because the point is to get the point across. <laughs> <laughs> in anyway. as creative a way as possible, yeah. Yes. And so sometimes I don't have a lot of patience with a writer who's too tricky. Well, I think there's, I would say there's maybe two things. The first is that our Lord spoke in short stories. His parables were never long. And I think that the mind is made for short stories or else our Lord wouldn't have used them. Secondly, reading Flannery alone, I found her deeply disturbing and confusing. And I often felt gutted after I had read the story. So in our last book club, we read Good Country People and Greenleaf. And we spent most of our discussion discussing Greenleaf. But about an hour into the discussion, our friend said, I'm really glad we're discussing this because when I read this, I did not know what to think and I kind of hated it. And he said, but in this discussion, I feel like I'm getting a better sense of it. And I said, you know, it's interesting because I read Greenleaf. I said, I put the book down. I was just mad. I was just like, <laughs> I don't even understand what happened in this story or why it matters. And I don't, I'm just mad. And I got to club and I'm like, no, 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 that was great. Yeah, that was great. But what about this? And what about that? It's just amazing that the power of community for me changes Flannery. It becomes alive and dynamic. Right. And I think that's where we're not meant to be alone as well. We're meant to be in community. And so one of the beauties then of Flannery is, is the invitation to meet and gather and to discuss ideas. And yeah. uh, so the story itself that she writes, I wonder if she had in mind of, right, people should be engaged in talking about these, not sitting uh, with themselves, but sharing. And so uh, almost like an evangelization that takes place of going out uh, to discuss grace and ideas. And I think, right, in our community, everybody finding Flannery disturbing, bothersome, disgusted. Uh, I think in our world today, we fail to recognize that God is at work even in the, the worst moments of our lives or the most worst moments of our culture or history or society. And that Flannery brings out that God is still at work, even in these acts of evil. And so don't fall into despair, but right, the evil characters that she has are ironically communicate God's grace. Even when he seems hidden to us. Yeah, even when he seems hidden to us. When we can't find him in the chaos or in the darkness, he's still there. And I think that our job is to always seek him. And I think we know that from Job. And we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane that our Lord cried out to his father. I think Flannery understands those passages of scripture particularly well. That Yeah, and that God can use bad things for his good. Yeah. 
having read most of these pretty close together, what seemed to jump out at me after the last few was that it's also about people who they don't think they need God because they have religion. And yeah. so they each have their their code that they live by and they call themselves Christians, but at the same time sort of scoffing at being Christ-like. Right. So they they feel like good people, so they don't need any help with that. And it just seemed like there was a lot of people like that because some of the worst people when you get done reading the stories you go man that was she was really racist or she was really proud or um whatever it is but they were they each of those people thought they were acting properly because they were living by their own code and so who needs god you're exactly right about that so diane i completely agree with that Father and I have several texts of Flannery, but one of our favorites is that Bishop Barron has compiled a um, collection of word on what he calls word on fire classics, which are classics that are particularly edifying for us to read. So in it, you'll find St. Augustine's Confessions, or you'll find Thomas Merton's Seven Storied Mountain, um, St. Ignatius's Spiritual Exercises, G.K. Chesterton, things like that. And he has Flannery O'Connor was one of the very first volumes he published and in it there'll be a short story and then there will be a couple of letters that she wrote about the time that the story was being published or when it was being received so those letters connect back to the story somehow and then there's also the inclusion of an essay that deals with some of the themes that connect so building on what you've just said there is in her essay called Some Aspects of the Grotesque in Southern Fiction. There's just this incredibly famous paragraph that she's written that we really love and we think kind of explains a little bit about what's at work in her stories. And she says, quote, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we are still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. That is a large statement and it is dangerous to make it for almost anything you say about Southern belief can be denied in the next breath with equal propriety. But (laughs) But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner, who isn't convinced of it, is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. In any case, it is when the freak can be sensed as a figure for our essential displacement that he attains some depth in literature. And so I just love that. I think that what she's saying there is that there is a, there's a freakishness about all of us. That's what sin does to us is it, it creates a freakishness in us. And even when we are not Christ-centered, we are still Christ-haunted. And the freak is best able to recognize grace. And maybe that's why he's terrified of it or he's running away from it. But nonetheless, in her text, 
the freak always points us to grace because the freak can see grace when the rest of us like like you're saying about the 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 people in the south like mrs turpin who's just wonderful you know her her religion is just so dear to her (laughs) (laughs) yeah with the freaks that's who jesus called he didn't have the righteous he didn't have uh people in positions of power but it was right it's the freaks that he used uh because they're the most as you pointed to um open to to the grace and the need uh, for a savior the others were invited though absolutely and i guess that kind of goes with what i was thinking is that a lot of the what seemed to be the main characters so busy trying to control their environment that they don't even know who they are and i think that that's part of what makes us uncomfortable is that we see little bits of ourselves in there and they're just carried to the extreme where they're willing to do almost anything like kill someone in in order to control what they think that they're going to have control over their destiny if they could just get everybody to do what they wanted them to and we don't really want to think about how much we're like that all the time And so a lot of times the main characters are actually the freaks because they're so distorted by their, their pride and their desperation for control. Well, and we think about Mary Magdalene, who was this great sinner, or we think about uh, Matthew as a tax collector, these, these terrible offenders. And yet because of their extreme sin, they were most grateful. And I think that's also what we see at work in here is that the Lord calls all, but it's those who have the the deepest well to climb out of who are most grateful when they are saved. It seems like at the end, a lot of times she is implying that the person realizes that at the point of death. Yeah, we, we talked about a lot. You know, in Revelation, it seems pretty obvious that Mrs. Turpin has made has turned that corner because um, she has received this revelation. I think it's pretty clear and a good man is hard to find that she too, the grandmother, has her conversion moment as well. We were really unsettled in Greenleaf. Um, there's commentary online and there was discussion in our group. People don't see it the same way. Some people think that she was in a posture of repentance at the end and others think she was in a posture of defiance. And that's kind of rare for Flannery. Most often Flannery's characters do accept grace when it comes rushing in. Isn't it Flannery who says that grace is often found at the end of the barrel of a gun? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Did you read Greenleaf, Diane? The one yes. about- which I thought was funny because you had said that the people in your group were wondering why did we read this story that's just about a bull <laughs> and so I was prepared to to plow through that and then I got done and went that wasn't about a bull <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's what everybody said oh yeah it's about a bull that was what everybody said in the chat I'm like oh okay and then I read it and I'm like what the heck is going on with this stupid bull but you know what Father Brad would disagree with you. It is a story about the bull because he perceives the bull as the Holy Spirit. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I agree with that. Do you, what did you think, though? I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> I do like that interpretation or understanding of a symbol because the bull is present even when she doesn't want it. 
And I saw the end with her getting speared in the heart by the bull, by the horns, as like St. Bernini's St. Teresa of Avila with the spear, right? It's a gold statue in Rome and an angel taking an arrow to her heart. And right, she's in ecstasy because she's in such love with with the Lord uh, that that bull horn is like that arrow going into the heart of you're going to receive this this grace and it's going to hurt right the holy spirit's going to enter into you and it will destroy you Mm -hmm. so to save you Mm -hmm. that's one of those things where i would think i wonder if she sat down and said okay i'm going to represent the holy spirit with the bowl but you can see things like he the bowl is not only where she doesn't want it but he haunts her dreams right yeah that was she can't escape him even when she's asleep no, exactly. He, he's in her dreams, almost as a voice of prophecy. And, and the constant, the eating, the sounds of eating and tearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't let you go. Mm-hmm. Flannery knew what she was doing. She was not trying to write a conventional novel or the conventional short story. She wasn't trying to please or satisfy. She was working in a particular way for a particular end. And she knew that it would only have a limited range for audience, but that it would in fact be truly authentic if she was left alone to do it her her way. It would be really authentic and meaningful Mm -hmm. to those who were prepared to deal with her on her own terms. Going back to Greenleaf for a second, you said that people weren't sure how Mrs. May ended up. So the very last part, as Mr. Greenleaf comes running out and shoots the bull, and it says, she did not hear the shots, but she felt the quake in the huge body as it sank, pulling her forward on its head, so that she seemed, when Mr. Greenleaf reached her, to be bent over, whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear. Isn't that the same kind of ending that more than one person has as they die is that they seem to be seeing something hearing something she's she seemed she's bent over seemingly whispering some last discovery into the animal's ear what is that right and and i discover that's one of the arguments to be made that says the bull signifies christ and that she's whispering her confession of repentance into his ear at her death and that that seems to be that you know, in the last moment she repented. So that is definitely one way of reading that. Um, but some people argue that she was actually um, cursing the bull and that it was unclear that she was, you know, if she was confessing or not. Where does the cursing come from? Just defiance, just the sense of defiance. Again, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm unsettled by this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because to me, the fact that the use of the word discovery, discovery. Means that it was something she, she hadn't thought of before. And so she's seeing something, oh, all along I've been thinking this way and it's something else. So to me, that was her, you know, mm-hmm. when someone dies and they, they start talking about, oh, I see the light, I see the light. It was, it seemed more like something like that to me. Well, even more than the light, more of the discovery of her own culpability, you know, the discovery mm-hmm. of her own fallenness. 
Mm-hmm. It's what I think. But yeah, it's like Mrs. Turpin seeing, seeing the light. I don't know. I felt like in Revelation, I really understood it. I didn't feel that way at the end of Greenleaf. She does use every word. And where sometimes when you're reading a novel, you can sort of skim over a few things and not lose too much. But if you skim over anything in her stories, you probably did miss who said something or who did Mm. something or, you know, what it was about. For how quick, as you mentioned, it is, Diane, that's where, right, everything that is articulated does matter because you only have so many words to say it. Diane, what stood out to you when you were reading these stories? I think probably that just the people who thought they were the hero of the story were actually the ones who are struggling so hard to be right without doing right. And they have to be brought around to understanding that somehow. And you see, they have to be brought around because of their pride. I would say that pride is the, the number one villain in all of Flannery's stories. Mm-hmm. Because of their immense pride, these people could not be reasoned with simply. They had to have a very caustic experience, a very extreme experience. If our listeners have listened to the Hobbit Club episode or any of the other Tuesday night episodes, they'll be familiar with Tim. And Tim always says every week when we're reading Flannery that Flannery just stretches him. Every week, he just wants to throw the book against the wall. (laughs) (laughs) But he's glad we're reading her because he knows it's working in him and that it's good for him. But she's hard. Even for people who've read a lot of really good, hard things, Flannery just is different. She's, She's really pointing out some of our basic human foibles that we try to pretend like we don't have. Because one of the other things that it seems like there's a theme with the, like I said, the people who think they're the main character of the story is that they always need somebody who's not as good as they are. They're always measuring themselves against other people. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of the heap or yeah, there are people better than I am, but thank goodness there are these other people who are just, you know, the white trash or whatever it is. Have you ever read Everything That Rises Must Converge? I'm not sure. If I did, it was a really long time ago. So that one's a story about a white woman who has really, she's she's really in decline. Her grandparents, you know, were well-to-do in high society. And she's now several generations removed from that. And she lives in a little in a little house with a son who's, you know, no good, but takes her to her weight reduction class every week. And she's just so <laughs> proud. She's so proud that she's still white and that she's from culture. She's from good culture, you from know, good stock, from good stock. And she, uh-huh. at least she's not one of them. She ain't white trash and she isn't the other either. She is genteel and she has this ridiculous hat. And when she sees that hat on the woman of African descent who is on the box, she is fit to be tied. That the thing she wants so badly to distinguish herself from is quite like her. And so she, she, she doesn't feel better than them anymore. And She said something to the lady and she got sucker punched. <laughs> 
I think that's one of those things that it's painful because we stop and think, oh, how much am I like that? Even though it's not as obvious as some of these really low characters, it hurts because it's true. Like C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters talking about one of the things that the demons are supposed to do, Wormwood is supposed to distract the patient from the gospel at church and instead draw his attention to the squeaky shoes and the woman singing off key, all the little things. And I think that's what Flannery does so well is she shows us that all those little things, they have a cumulative effect. And so in the, in the case of the patient, the patient thinks that he's better. Like that's what the demon Werman is doing is making the patient think that he's better than those other people. But he's not, he has all of his own sins and the demon is distracting him from his own sin. Well, that's what I think is going on in Flannery's stories is that these people think everybody else's sins are sins, but they're things they're not sin. And yet what do we see is that character after character has a hard heart and is closed off from grace and is, you know, a hypocrite. And mm -hmm. it's quite damaging to their soul. And so they need a baseball bat. Yeah. Even the lower characters, each one of those characters has somebody that they have sort of kept down. And those people where you would think, oh, wow, they really seem humble. That does detrimental things to them too, because a lot of them have just said, well, you know, I'm clear down here on the totem pole. I don't really have to do anything. Mr. Greenleaf, he's just totally fine being nothing special. Mm -hmm. You know, he's in his mind, he's better than Miss May because his son turned out better than hers, but he still doesn't have any need to work, you know, or be responsible. So even the lesser characters in the story, like you say, have their own hierarchy. Yeah. Like how good are we at getting out of actually doing any work? <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems to be a virtue. <laughs> I was thinking, and I didn't have a chance to say this at book club, but I was thinking about Mr. Greenleaf's two sons, the ones who the army made and Miss May doesn't want to have anything to do with them. But yet we keep hearing that she was kind to them when they were growing up and, and coming up in the world. I can't help but wonder if Grace isn't also present there. Perhaps part of why they turned out well is that which was good in Miss May may have been communicated to them in mm. some way or shape. You know, even though her sons were stubborn and prideful and spoiled, she had some good ownership of those boys too. I think. I think she helped to raise those boys too, is what I'm trying to say. Hmm. And so I just kept wondering if that wasn't also Grace saying, see, you are not unredeemable. There is something in you. There's a goodness in you that is being transmitted. But then what does it mean then? Let's say the bull is the Holy Spirit, that they let him wander off and do not want it back. Well, I mean, I think we were thinking the Holy Spirit knows no master. And so if you can't control the spirit and the spirit will be let loose. And so the spirit does not submit to your will, but rather you to its. And so we took it as the bull was really in charge and the boys were wise enough to know that. Ah, because I took it as why, why are they so set on not getting it back? It sounded like 
they were actually adamant. They didn't even want to know where he went. Right. No, that was unsettling to me too. It did seem, like I said, neglect. There was something there that seems off. So I don't know. What do you think about it? Maybe just that they're not perfect either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was their gift to, to their neighbor. Oh, oh, I insist you have it. <laughs> well, maybe they did value the bowl and they turned it loose on her for her good. Right. I don't know. <laughs> And their dad just had the wrong impression. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Their dad seemed to me to not be a particularly wonderful character. <laughs> well, that's kind of pride too. He and Mrs. May are both pretty prideful. And yeah. I think they just, they sort of, they're like, you know, they, they spark against each other because they each have a, an ax to grind. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Cause I think his wife is, is a whole different question. <laughs> I thought her to be a reprobate, um, but some of the others in the group thought she was prayerful. I, I don't know. I thought I didn't have a great, very high opinion of her. That's for sure. <laughs> no, I kind of agreed with Mrs. May on that. Yeah, of course it comes through her lens too. So we don't know, but it did seem to be a little absurd. <laughs> yeah. Father, what was your favorite Flannery story? Do you have a favorite? I do like Revelation. I do like Geranium. I thought it was hilarious, too. Um, <laughs> I find it hilarious that you think Geranium is hilarious, but that's right. <laughs> yeah. I prefer Geranium over Judgment Day. Why is that, do you think? It's a little bit happier of an ending. <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> it's a little more innocent. Yeah, and I, I, what I find funny is that uh, old Dudley. I just couldn't recognize the similarities of his situation back home in the South and his situation in New York. It's like yeah. your best friend was was a black man who lived in the same building as you, but you can't you can't stand it in New York City. Right. And just the beauty and the grace that that man offered old Dudley, helping him up the stairs, and then old Dudley's just the shock, like speechlessness. And then the end with the geranium falling off and like the world, his world is shattered, like his worldview and sitting there and pondering it. I just thought, I'm like, this is brilliant and funny. Well, and it, you know, we talked last night about the fact that when the geranium fell and crashed, the plant was down, but the roots were up. And I couldn't help but wonder if that did not signify the opportunity for new birth. Mm-hmm. new growth that those roots would then set up new shoots on top and that perhaps that's a you know a moment of his, of conversion for him or the possibility of conversion sure well and right the symbolism of the world just turned upside down for sure right? like, yeah yeah <laughs> unlike judgment day oh. pretty final yeah and it just occurred to me and this might not actually be connected at all but when you were talking about the how he felt about the geranium falling out of the window made me think of jonah where god makes the plant grow and then mm-hmm. when he kills the plant he jonah's so upset and it's like what do you have to do with this mm-hmm. because <laughs> because the old man had got to watching the geranium and started kind of feeling like he had some say in it or understood it and when it falls, he's sort of outraged in the way that Jonah was outraged that the plant died. Yeah. So 
Well, isn't that even, it's a great metaphor for how we feel about our children or father, you might feel about those in your flock. We, we, they're mine. I have a sense of ownership of this and they're not, they belong to God. Mm-hmm. And they, they're, how could you have let that happen? Yeah, exactly. I was going to ask, did you read the geranium before you read, read judgment day? Yes. Yeah. We read that one first. Do you think it would have mattered if you had read them in the other order? Good question. Because sometimes I wonder if it just feels more like it's not one that was better, that one was better than the other, but that the first one you read seems like the right way and the second one isn't. (laughs) Yeah, I think just the Judgment Day one was much heavier, the ending of it. And I think it's like, well, that first one was just so much fun. And this one, it's like, whoo, that, uh, that, uh, that's uh, that's difficult. So, yeah, I, it would have been curious to read it in a different order. We'll never know, though, will we? Well, so I read Geranium first and then Judgment Day, and I prefer Judgment Day. It's darker. It's definitely more macabre, but I think it's more complex. I, I enjoy chewing on it more. It's mm-hmm. definitely depressing, that's for sure. But I also have a little bit of sentimentality towards it, it, knowing that it was her last. I feel like she's telling us something significant in this one about herself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure what it is, but I just feel confident that she is. And so my great love and respect for her makes me want to really sit with that one and figure out what it is that she's trying to say. Mm-hmm. So I would also recommend that uh, no matter what your religious creed is, that if you're curious about Flannery O'Connor and you have, you're not going to buy another book or you, you've already read a great biography on her, like Jonathan Rogers, but you're looking for something else, the Word on Fire Pivotal Player series, his video on Flannery O'Connor is, is truly brilliant. And you can sample it on YouTube. Most of it is filmed in her home in Andalusia. And so you get kind of the taste and flavor of Flannery. And we'll put the link in the show notes for people who are curious. I'm glad we did Flannery. I love Flannery. (laughs) Yeah, no, me too. It's, I'm glad that I finally picked it back up and, and understanding it now. Well, this was fun. And I think you're right that you shouldn't read Flannery by yourself. So I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about this. So thank you, um, Father Jordan, for joining us this evening. And mm-hmm. thank you both for sharing with me another one of your Tuesday book clubs. Thank you, Diane, for joining us. And Father, thank you so much. I love that we get to keep talking about Flannery together. Yeah. And we'll be happy to have you come back. Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>